If you'll take your Bibles to the book of Luke again this morning, the first chapter. Last week we introduced the book to you there. And this morning we're actually going to get into it here, the forerunner announced. And the information here that uh, we have, that we read in the scripture reading, and that's before us this morning here, it, it concerns the birth of the forerunner, John the Baptizer. And this information is found only here in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, gives us his birth, the visit, his visit by the wise men, his flight into Egypt, and the and return from it. But it's not until chapter three that John the Baptist is introduced, and then only because uh, he has already been preaching in the wilderness and is now ready to baptize the Lord Jesus Christ uh, there in uh, uh, preparation for his ministry, three and a half year ministry. Mark opens his gospel with the with John already in ministry, preaching the preaching in the wilderness. Repent. Prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, he and uh, preparing as a forerunner of Christ as prophesied by Malachi and Isaiah. Mark gives the reader no background on John other than he suddenly appears in the wilderness preaching. And and uh, having up, appeared, then he then baptizes the Lord Jesus Christ and introduces him. Then through this, uh, t- in uh, at that at the Jordan River, the Gospel of John does not give us any details about the birth of Christ or his childhood. Doesn't give us any an- uh, ancestry or or uh, genealogy or any such thing. And I believe the reason is because John is presenting him as the divine Son of God who has come down and made himself flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth there, John 1.14. John the baptizer then is also introduced as the second Elijah. The prophetic witness there according to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 3. His job was to formally announce the Christ. Your Messiah is here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I believe world there has reference to the fact that John is making it clear that Jesus did not come just for the Jews or for the nation of Israel. He came for people of all kindred and race. John one twenty nine, and like Matthew and John and Mark, excuse me, John gives no details about John's background. Only Luke. And here we have the birth of the forerunner in the Gospel of Luke. Since Luke was a Gentile. And I believe that uh, Theophilus here is probably a uh, 
symbolic name of the Gentile readers, the God-fearers and those who love the Lord among the Gentiles that he's seeking to reach with his gospel. He wants his readers uh, to have additional details that form the foundation which uh, he has already carefully researched concerning the coming of Jesus so that his readers will have certainty in their understanding of Jesus. He also presents information about the Jewish culture which is necessary for his readers to have an understanding. Being Gentile in background. So he opens with the historical setting here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. I wonder how many Christians really understand the political situation in the world in which Jesus came. I, I think many Christians kind of assume that Herod was a Jew. He's the king of the Jews. But he's not. He's an Edomian. Do you know what an Edomian is? They came from the region south of Judea. The area that in biblical times has historically been given to the children of Esau. Edom. Edomia. Edomite. He was an Edomite. Not a son of Jacob. A son of Esau. And he was given the kingship over that whole area of Edomia and Judea by the Romans. He actually took over from his father. And this, this, this area, this political period right here is an interesting because it's closing 400 years, what we would refer to as Israel's dark ages. 400 silent years when there was no prophet, no word from heaven, nothing to mark or the advent of any of the restoration promises of the Old Testament. For the most part, the Jews during that time, though they chafed considerably, as illustrated there by the Hasmoneans, they pretty much accepted their lot under Gentile domination, which was clearly prophesied in the book of Daniel. However, Old Testament and oral tradition preserved their past and its rich spiritual and political heritage, and more, but more importantly, their messianic expectations were alive and well at this point. Many Jewish maidens wondered, will I be the one God chooses to bring in the Messiah? And but So Luke particularly emphasizes these Jewish roots, which are the roots of their Christianity. But these were also desperate and dark days. 
the Romans were not gentle. <laughs> they were not. Uh, they were not a merciful and kind dominion. And Herod himself was not a uh, a very great person. In fact, uh, he he had killed two of his own sons. He began his rule there in that area at about 40 B.C. and he ruled for 33 years as a tyrant. But he also at the same time was seeking to improve relations with the Jews. And he but he also wanted them to compromise and so he really stressed Greek culture. In fact, the Hellenist the Hellenist Jews uh, were particularly uh, coming to to light at this particular point. He established a military composed of foreign soldiers so that he could exercise dominance in Israel. He centralized his bureaucracy and began building projects throughout the region, one including upgrading the temple. So it's referred to in history as Herod's Temple. It was actually built by Zerubbabel, but was uh, but had kind of fallen into some disrepair in that 400 silent years, and and then Herod stepped in to improve it and to uh, expand its uh, area. But he was a paranoid tyrant, constantly fearing the loss of his kingdom, even to the execution of two of his sons. Alexander and Aristobulus. For your information, Herod had ten wives and fifteen children. And there was a popular saying of the day that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. This is the background that Luke opens his gospel in the days of Herod, king of the Jews, king of Judea. It says there was a priest. We have a bridge here. We're now going to be bridging the old covenant as we bring in the new. This is the bridge period. Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, before the 400 silent years closed his the, the Old Testament canon with the prediction of Elijah's coming. We read there in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now the great and awesome day of the Lord will be God's judgment. And the Old Testament uh, understood the day of the Lord is being the time of God's judgment upon the nations. And we, we have some clarification in our New Testament uh, theology that that day of the Lord will come when Jesus Christ returns from heaven after, in His second advent, the parousia. But this day of the Lord, I think, is uh, there have been other days of the Lord. For example, on the whole world there under uh, the flood of Noah... Under Sodom and Gomorrah, when God rained fire and brimstone on these two cities, or the cities of the plain, 
And there was a day of the Lord when God judged Jerusalem. During the days of the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And now, after they have been returned by the Persians, Malachi closes the Old Testament with warning that there's another day of the Lord coming for Judah. But before that day comes, he's going to send Elijah, the prophet, before this awesome day of the Lord. And, and notice his, what he's going to do. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And what is that, what's that a reference to? I think that's kind of veiled language that explains that God is going to save a people during this time for his own name. And notice the construction here, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God is saying, I don't want to completely wipe them out, so I'm going to save a remnant. And I believe that's the uh, point there of that turning the hearts of the fathers. And I think, I'll show you here, I think that that can be justified. So, uh, this text then was to pronounce was pronounced by Gabriel to Zechariah in our in our text. Notice there in verse number seventeen, he that's referring to John the Baptist will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Repent. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Repent. He's calling out a remnant for his name. And the text also explains the mission of John. There in verses 16 and 17, who was, who, John was filled, and this is, a, this is an interesting reference. John was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. If you remember the story when Mary comes to greet Elizabeth, Elizabeth says, before you got here, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. <laughs> Interesting. He's going to be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn the hearts of the children to, of Israel to the Lord their God. All of them? No. But a remnant? Yes. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And here's for what reason? To make ready a people, uh, for, make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, God says, I'm going to bring my son in and I'm going to have a people that will be prepared for him when he gets here. A believing remnant. And it was a small remnant. For Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This text here is alluded to by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when uh, 
John was in prison and he sent some disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you truly the Messiah? And he points back to the Old Testament scriptures that John the Baptist knew. But uh, John then explains to the crowd in uh, the 14th verse there, if you are willing to accept it, he, that is John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Fulfilling Malachi's prophecy. So John the Baptist here is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so we read there that from the days of John the Baptist, the days of John the Baptist is a reference to a period of time, not not just his immediate uh, life context, but the days of the Old Covenant from Elijah the prophet to John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is a figure of the original Elijah. So we read there from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law uh, for all, excuse me, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So Jesus is telling us in that passage that John is the end of the Old Covenant. In that brief statement summarizes the failure of Israel to keep and advance the kingdom of God, which which was that the Torah and the prophets preached that covenant that that they preached until John the Baptist. Malachi testified, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day, and this is the day of the Lord, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's chapter 4, verse 1. This judgment on Judah is what John warned of when he began his ministry declaring, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. For every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, that's the remnant, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 10. The axe fell in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So now while Malachi was very severe in the condemnation of unfaithful Israel, He also gave great hope to the faithful remnant within the nation. God never leaves himself without a witness. Thus the Lord promised, but but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. That's verses 2 and 3 of Malachi. So what's Malachi doing? 
He's saying John the Baptist is coming. He's coming to introduce the Son of Righteousness who will arise with healing in His wings and save the remnant for the Lord of hosts. So the Lord was bringing in the new covenant and the kingdom of God in the days of the Messiah's, of the Messianic forerunner, Zechariah, one who feared his name and his prayer was about to be answered. The son of Elizabeth would bear him a son to fulfill Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Now, I want to just leave you also with this. Luke uses here what is known as a pattern of alliteration. And I'll let you read the first couple, two or three chapters there of the book of Luke to see what I'm referring to. But the pattern of alliteration uh, is, is making this connection with the Old Testament and it does so in a way that shifts attention back and forth from John the Baptist to Jesus. John the Baptist to Jesus. And you see that uh, in John's in uh, Luke's Gospel. Not to create confusion, as uh, some may suppose, but rather as a literary device to focus attention successive, uh, successively on each person. John is very important, and Luke understands that. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's closing the Old Covenant. He is announcing the, the, the Messiah who is to come, the Son of the Most High, and the Messianic Deliverer bringing in the New Covenant and the Kingdom of God. And that is why all the Gospels introduce Jesus by declaring the time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. So let's get into the story itself here of the faithful priest. Here we have this faithful priest, Zechariah. Zechariah means remembered of Yahweh. Remembered of Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? And and it really becomes evident when uh, you see what the man has gone through. He's an old man. He's advanced in years. And he said uh, his wife Elizabeth also was advanced in years. He didn't, I, you know, he was very kind. He didn't say, my wife's an old lady. He said she's advanced in years. He's being very kind to her. Elizabeth means oath of God. Oath of God. And Luke points out here that these were very faithful in life and service and obedience. Verses 5 to 7. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. He's a priest. And as a priest, he was well instructed in the word of God. For that was his duty as a priest, as a Levite, to teach the word of God. He was also an elder priest, skilled in the wisdom of years. He was looked up to and regarded. And you can see that by the response of the people when he comes out of the, out of the uh, temple. 
he was regarded as an example of what a of what a real believer is. God prepared that this man for this time. Yet this time was not also without its troubling issues, and and that should be should comfort us. Life is not going to be easy. It's going to be filled with trials and difficulties. And there's going to be times when we wonder, what's going on? Why won't the Lord answer my prayers? Which is what we find here with Zechariah. They had no no child, Luke says. They had no child because Elizabeth, was barren. Now, that's here's a pattern here. <laughs> Elizabeth is like Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Rachel, Samson's mother, the unnamed wife of Manoah, and Samuel's mother, Hannah. Seems to be a pattern in Scripture here. She was barren. And the second problem now is they were both advanced in years, like Abraham. Verse 7. God, God permitted that for a reason, like in Abraham's life. He, he, he let them get old so that the son that would be born would be a miracle son. And he is a picture and an illustration of Jesus Christ. And here again, we have this old couple who have no child, advanced in years, actually beyond the, the childbearing years. There's a pattern here. And this pattern demands and encourages faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. In the, in the culture of the day, barrenness, and Luke mentions this, was considered, a, 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 that barrenness was considered a curse from God indicating that there was something that was in their lives that had created God's displeasure. Yet we read that they were blameless before the Lord, even though Elizabeth was barren. And this should remind us not to judge things just by their appearance. Yes, they were childless at that time, but see, here again, the Lord was preparing them for something that was amazing through the child He was about to give them. So as Zechariah served his rotation, he was of the of the they they divided the the, the uh, priestly family, the sons of Aaron, into lots or different groups by their ancestral father Abijah here is Zechariah and then they in turn had rotations they, they came from their places throughout the, the uh, country of Israel there and came to the temple and for a period of a, a week or two served there in the temple and it says as the lot fell out uh, apparently they they cast lots, which uh, by which they designated who would do what. 
that's a that's really the sovereignty of God. It's not luck. When the Bible talks about casting lots, it's not it's not luck. It's it's determining the sovereignty of God in the matter. Who does God want to serve in these various places? And lot the lot fell out to Zechariah to attend the altar of incense. The the uh, incense was burned at the altar of incense two times a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. So we don't we don't know exactly when this was, but I'm kind of assuming it was morning. At those times, the people would come to the temple and pray. This was kind of a prayer meeting time, daily prayer meeting. People gathering at the temple, praying during the time of the inc- of the burning of the incense. And this was his job. Now was to do this. And it, when he did this, the angel appeared to him. Notice at the at on the side of the altar of incense, which which is interesting. What is the message that's being conveyed there? It reminds me there of Revelation chapter eight and verse three. That says, and another angel came and stood by the, at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. Praying. Interestingly, the angel's first words to Isaiah, to to, to uh, excuse me, Zechariah, because he was afraid. He's when he saw him. Whoa! I mean, wouldn't you be a little startled too <laughs> if suddenly uh, you're offering incense there and there's an angel standing there? But uh, the angel said to him, "Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard." Verse thirteen. Zechariah was a praying man. And for many, many years, he's been praying. And I believe the prayer he's been praying is obvious in the connection here of the fact that he's telling him, your prayer is answered and Elizabeth is going to have a son. How much he prayed for God to give them a boy, to give them a son or a child. And isn't it a marvelous the grace of God here that he, in his old age God sent an angel to tell him your prayer is heard. I've heard your prayer. I've watched you pray for all of these years. And I've heard your prayer. And I'm here to tell you that it's going to be answered. And I'm sending a divine messenger to bring you that news. Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. He even tells him what his name will be. When he said John, you know, we'll, we'll get into that, but people say, you don't have anybody in your family by that name. <laughs> no, that's what the name God said. John. And you will have, notice, I love this. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. Verses 
13 to 15. And Jesus affirms this when he says in Matthew 11, 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John, no one greater than John the Baptist. But then Jesus added something that, that's kind of puzzling. Head scratching. Lots of head scratching stuff in the in the scriptures. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he. What did he mean by that? Was he demeaning John in some way? No. What did he mean then when he said one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he? And here he's comparing the covenants. The old covenant is the covenant John served in. He's the last of the old covenant prophets and preachers. But in the new covenant, it's going to be so much better, so much greater, so much more glorious that the least person in that new covenant will be greater than John the Baptist. Not that John the Baptist is not so great, because he is. We can read right here that he is. But that the new covenant is so much better. Far more benefits. Far greater. More than anyone could ever think. Yet note what John would have to do. He would, would, would have and do. First of all, he would be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. We notice that. This shows the greatness of, of the man under the old covenant. He would then also turn uh, away, uh, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Which I think is what he means, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. And thirdly, he would make ready a people for the Lord, a prepared people for the Lord. But, uh, and here's the sad part. The angel's announcement was met with a faithless response. Something akin to uh, the experience of many of us. We've waited and waited and waited and not, the prayer has not been answered. And then when, when we're told the prayer is going to be answered, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but that's what happened here. Zechariah could not believe it. He couldn't believe it. Now Elizabeth did. And Mary did. Neither one of them had any problem with it. And they rejoiced. But Zechariah, not so much. Instead, he questioned, How shall I know, understand this? Know or understand, it means to understand this. For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. See, he got his focus off the supernatural and kept it on the natural only. Is God able to do, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Can God do anything? I mean, he's already proved it in the life of Abraham. Abraham said, well, I'm, but I'm an old man. No. Sarah laughed. 
She said, shall a woman as old as I am have a son? She laughed. Why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. She was embarrassed. I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And again, I say, he was kind to her. He didn't say, and my wife's an old lady. No, my wife's advanced in years. Past the age of childbearing. Zechariah looked only on the difficulty and failed to encourage his own heart by the past experiences of the people of God in the same predicament, such as Abraham. He ignored the promises and even those related to the ceremony he was conducting. Praying. Assuring the worshiper that God hears and answers prayer. Do you believe that? Do you believe God answers prayer? Do you believe that our prayers are heard? Do you believe that they, that God will answer them? Well, what about the times when He doesn't seem to? When you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and then you're advanced in years and still no answer. Somebody says, God said, He says, yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> No, I believe God works in our prayer lives and when we are set to pray for a thing, that that thing is going to become a reality in our lives. Just like here with Zechariah. This doubt was humiliating to God. In essence... Zechariah was saying that he was shutting God's mouth. The angel from God himself was there to tell him, you're going to have a son. And, and Zechariah said, nah, tell God to be quiet. That can't happen. So what did the angel do? <laughs> The angel said, you want to shut God's mouth, God's going to shut yours until this baby is a reality. <laughs> That's, and he tempered it here with mercy. It was a discipline from God, but he tempered it with mercy. And here's the issue in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, If we are faithless, He, the Lord, remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. So His doubts came at a time of great prophetic significance. The Savior of the world is about to come on the scene. God answered his prayer in spite of his doubts and Elizabeth conceived and a servant of the Lord was born. We'll look into that later. So in conclusion, let me just throw three things at you. Number one, God's way of bringing about his will is clearly his alone. If we, if we were put in charge of God's kingdom process it would be a mess and a half. Oh, let us keep remembering 
that while some of our prayers may not seem to be answered right away in the way that we expect them to be answered, we, we just need to leave it with God and know that He will answer that prayer because if it came from our lips, it's because He put it there. He put the burden on us to pray. And then we pray and He works it out in His own time and to His own glory by His divine sovereign power. The second thing that I want you to catch, and that is to, we need to learn to believe the impossible. We look around and we say, well, that, that can't happen. That's not going to happen. Don't doubt God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He is the God of the impossible. In the symbolic language of, of the Lord Jesus, He said, if you had faith, you could say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the midst of the sea, and it would be done for you. I don't think God is interested in our going around moving mountains. I, I, I like them right where they are, and I think that God had a reason for putting them there. But... But we, we can move mountains spiritually if we really believe God. And who gives us the faith? The faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's the work of the Spirit of God in us that enables this. We need to learn to believe the impossible even when our eyes can't see how it's possible. Then thirdly, we have something far greater than angelic announcements. We don't need an angel to come to us and stand by our bedside at night and tell us that our prayer is answered. The reason is, we have this book. An angel came to Zechariah in the temple at the altar of incense. And I can read that in my Bible. <laughs> and I can say, Lord, you can answer me in the, through this book right here. Do you believe the Bible? Or do you need something other than the Bible? Is, is the Word of God sufficient? Is it able? Yeah. Father, thank you for this story of the Elijah of God coming into the world as prophesied by Malachi the prophet closing the Old Testament canon 400 years earlier. Here is this priest standing there ministering, doing his duty, as he's probably done for year after year after year after year. And he's prayed and he's asked God, Lord, my wife doesn't have a child. Oh, that we could have a family. If you would just give us a son. And now, after all this time, God sends his angel to Zechariah and says, Elizabeth's going to have a son, and he's going to be great before the Lord. Oh, Elijah's prayer was answered in a powerful way that, light, that Zechariah could never have imagined. He just wanted a son to carry on his name. He just wanted a son to give his as inheritance to. He just wanted a son that he could love and he could look to and he could see grandchildren. He just wanted a son 
that would fulfill his life. But God gave him a son that would change many lives and turn the hearts of many fathers to their children and their children to their fathers. Oh, Father, help us to trust you and believe you in these matters. And we just praise you and thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen.